Hey friends, I'm Allie O'Grady and welcome to Thoughtful Human, the podcast. Today's conversation is the second in our series with the men from Success Stories, an organization that builds safe communities by delivering transformational feminist programs to people who have caused harm. In my last conversation with Chris Johnson, we learned what success stories means by toxic masculinity and the ways in which it leads many men away from integrity and towards ideas and behaviors that cause harm to both themselves and others. The Success Stories program offers men another path, and through their stories, it's clear the very real and profound impact their work is having and its genuine ability to change hearts and minds. Today's guest is Graham Finocchio. Today, he's an amazing transformational coach at Success Stories. His story that led him here was many things, heartbreaking, controversial, and incredibly inspiring, to name a few. We discussed some of his early trauma and how he came to identify as a skinhead, how prison reinforced his beliefs around toxic masculinity and white supremacy, and the moment things really started to change for him. He walks us through his personal transformation and his thoughts today on forgiveness, amends, and what healthy love looks like. He shares more about the curriculum Success Stories offers to help guide men towards a similar path and leaves us with some tips on how to approach these kinds of conversations within our own relationships. Please note, in this episode, there's conversation around physical and sexual violence, as well as sensitive content related to race and Graham's past involvement as a skinhead. Please take this into consideration and only approach this episode if and when you have capacity for this kind of subject matter. For the purposes of this conversation, we'll be using men, male, and masculine to refer to any person identifying as a man, and women, female, and feminine to refer to any person identifying as a woman. Without further ado, Graham Pinocchio. Hi, Graham. Welcome to the Thoughtful Human Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I am so excited to speak with you. Let's start from the beginning. I would love to know, you know, just uh, about your personal story. Where did you grow up? Um, What was it like being you when you were young? All right. So uh, I grew up in Orange County, California and uh, in Huntington Beach. And uh, it's pretty, it's not affluent necessarily, not all of it, but the community has an affluent side to it. And that wasn't my experience growing up. My family, my mother and father were in and out of prison and addicted to heroin. And, uh, you know, I was mostly raised by my grandmother. Uh, And the house that we lived in was my grandmother's house. And my parents, when they were out of prison, would filter in and out of this house. Uh, And, you know, my my father uh, had a a history of abuse as a child. Um, he, He, you know, when he was coming down from heroin, he was in a, a very specific kind of mood and he would, you know, he'd berate or abuse. There was a lot of emotional and, and, and verbal abuse and a lot of physical abuse. So uh, that was pretty much how I was brought up. Uh, and, and, you know, moving forward into life uh, based on the people they were around and based on situations that we were put in, I experienced sexual abuse as well. And it left me feeling awkward. Like, uh, and I don't know if that's even the right word. Like I just felt out of place. I felt awkward uh, for the entirety of being a kid. So I would go into situations and always second guess myself. An example that I could give is um, like, I was given a high aptitude. uh, So they put me in gifted classes and I always thought they were lying. And I think it's based off the tapes that I was hearing from stuff that my dad would say. 
so I thought they were lying and that I actually was mentally challenged and they were just cradling me. I remember thinking that probably in second grade. So that was pretty, that was my upbringing. And that went all the way up until I started using drugs in like fourth and fifth grade uh, and getting in trouble in school. Uh, I got expelled from every school that I was in. And I think in retrospect, like I was looking for help, like support, but all they do is put you, put me in those, uh, like those very, very typical basic counseling sessions where a person just, I just, I just didn't believe in anything that they prescribed. And so I stepped out of that and into a world of my own. Wow. That sounds incredibly painful. Um, and just, I mean, how much do you feel like you were even aware of what was going on with you internally at that age? I just know I was angry. I remember feeling anger and I remember feeling sadness, but not really, I guess, socially at that time. I mean, this is the nineties. I grew up in the nineties. So uh, the stuff that I'd experienced on a realistic level, a lot of people were experiencing simultaneously and at probably record rates, but that wasn't an era where we discussed those things, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I went to school with, uh, with marks on my face once and, you know, they just, they didn't do anything. They had no, they had no response. And I, I don't think that that would happen today, thankfully. Um, hopefully it wouldn't happen at least. But uh, that was just the era of that. So I felt very much within myself and the, the confines of that, like a, a shared experience with my sister. Uh, like that was my connecting point was my sister, my dog. Those were the, that was the community. My grandmother was always amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the community that I had. Did you feel like you were able to speak? openly or honestly with them about what you were experiencing? No, I didn't. Or with um, anybody? Not really. No, I, I mean, I, I had a, a tinge towards like very blunt honesty and that mm-hmm. doesn't sit well with people, especially in the nineties, sure. but probably still not today. Um, so if I said something and it wasn't received well, I was punished. So I just tended not to say those things. Mm-hmm. So looking back can you describe what your earliest ideas of manhood were? Sure. Um, so when I was uh, in second grade, I got bullied a lot in school. Let me, let me start with that. So I got bullied a lot. I had a, a lisp. I was also raised by my grandmother. So I had like a half cocked English act, half English accent. Some of my words didn't come out very clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, like just the general awkwardness that was me, that I felt was me, just I came off weird in situations. So I got bullied a lot. And I remember one time I went into a classroom and you put your backpack in front of the class. Uh, every, all the kids put their backpacks in front of the class and we were waiting to go into the class and I was walking into the classroom and one of the bullies pushed me and I fell over the backpacks and everybody laughed. They're like all the kids mm-hmm. waiting to go in class laughed. And I just, I, I remember screaming and just tackling him, just pure rage. And I, you know, I was in second grade. I, I wasn't adept at fighting at that point. And so like, I'm just like shaking him. I'm on top of him and I got spit and tears running down in his face. Mm-hmm. And uh, everybody backed away and they just watched, you know, it was quiet. Like it was super quiet. There wasn't anybody cheering or trying to pull me off until the teacher came out. Um, and so fast forward a little bit, we're in the principal's office, we both get suspended. My dad comes in, picks me up. The second we get in the car, he smacks me. He says, don't ever have them come bring me to this office again. Not don't fight, not, you know, don't ever have them come pick. So the impression I got from that was don't get caught. 
Make sure you don't get caught. Don't do these things in public places. And then, so we're driving, it's very awkward in the car. It's very silent and we're driving home. And the next question out of his mouth was, did you win? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I think I did. And I saw what I can only think of as pride in his face. Uh, he didn't say anything, but I saw that. And in that moment, in that very moment, I knew that these are two things that I will get my father's approval from. Yeah. Don't get caught and make sure you win. Um, and that's, that's a, like a, a very like visual lesson of something that yeah. I picked up. So from the second grade, I, I definitely had an impression of what would get bullies away from me. Cause I never got bullied again after that. That didn't happen. If I did, I fought and they went away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also what would bring my father who I had a tumultuous relationship to say the least uh, joy. So moving into adolescence, how did this evolve and, and how did that relationship with your father evolve? So like move, moving on into the years, I stayed away from home a lot when he was home. Um, we had a very, very strained relationship. Uh, I, I ended up at the age of 12. I hung out with friends who were doing the same things as me. That's where I was introduced to drugs. That's where I was introduced to doing other things that weren't pro-social, I guess is one way of saying it. And uh, at 12, I remember once I went home and uh, my father was home. He hadn't been home in a while and he was home from jail and and he said oh you know i want to take you to the movies and i i remember clearly thinking all of a sudden you want to be a dad like that's not going to happen and 12 is a pretty rebellious era for probably anybody that's 12 so i remember talking back and he i was in the we had like a little kitchen tiny little kitchen space the dishwasher was open um and he grabbed me by the head I had long hair at the time, very, very long hair. And he threw me down and the dishwasher was open. My grandmother was loading it. And the little spikes from the bottom of the tray like went up in my cheek and cut me. Mm-hmm. So I got up and I ran to my room uh, and I reached under my bed. And I'd never played hockey a day in my life, but I had like a Nerf hockey stick. And I'm standing at the door waiting. And in my head, I had the impression that I was going to scare him away. I was going to swing from one doorway, my doorway, to the next doorway directly across the hall. And I'm going to scare him away. And I made a full miss and it just swung when he came barreling down the hallway. Uh, It swung and hit him in the face and his nose just busted. And there was blood on walls and on his face. And I knew in that moment that I couldn't come home again. So I jumped out my window, I took off and I stayed on the streets uh, from the age of 12 until 14 and a half. Um, And during that time, I, you know, I slept in, I slept in parks and on friends' couches and old abandoned schools. Uh, and that was when I was introduced to skinheads. I was sleeping in a park at one point, and I'd been in fights before, but uh, I'd gotten jumped by other gangs before, but this group of rowdy, loud kids came walking to this park, and I'm lying on a bench, uh, and they, instead of, uh, instead of being forceful towards me, they embraced me. They invited me to go to a show, which is like a punk rock show. They're like, hey, come with us. And they took me back to their house, and over a period of months, just began grooming me. So in the instant that I saw them in this park, I saw everything that I wanted to be in terms of manhood. Like they were proud and, and arrogant even. Like they were boisterous. They were loud. They weren't awkward in their skin. It didn't seem that way, at least. Uh, mm-hmm. They had like paramilitary gear on bombers, braces, which is like thin suspenders, uh, boots, and shaved heads. And they looked just a certain way that I was like, that is what a man is supposed to be. So it was very easy for me to make the transition from this awkward, lanky, small, 
long haired kid into what they were teaching me to be. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, that's what, yeah. Seems like the first kind of community or acceptance that you experienced. Yeah, I would say that. So I know that there's various interpretations and uh, a broad spectrum of ideas related with uh, the word skinhead. Can you clarify for anybody listening, uh, maybe what your impression of skinheads were when you met them and what that grew to mean to you? Sure. I thought that there were people who wouldn't take any, anything that anybody threw at them, they wouldn't take anything. Uh, and so that was enough for me. I also saw them as a part of the punk rock scene, which I was a part of already. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, skins and punks, they ran together. So I didn't know the history of it. I didn't understand any of the ideology that was coming. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but that part, that part stood out to me that, you know, they're not going to take any shit, pardon my language. Uh, and they also, uh, they, you know, they're part of the scene that I'm already a, a part of anyways. They like the same music. They're at the same shows. They're willing to fight. They're willing to teach me how to fight. And that was enough. That was, you know, I was able to cement what I saw as manhood through just being around them and modeling their behavior. Mm -hmm. So that was the initial draw. And then what did the evolution of that look like? Through the process of like prospecting, which is what they call it. Like they, there's very simple common language that's utilized. There's very, very racist terms that are utilized that will make someone pause. But then there's uh, the idea that like, oh, well, this part of the city looks like this because of those people. Uh, This part of this area is destroyed because of this behavior from these people. And through that kind of us versus them separation, I slowly but surely evolved to plus just out of peer acceptance, like sitting there and pushing back against that wasn't something that I was equipped nor had the educational basis to do. I didn't know if what they were saying was true or not. All I could see was what visually made sense. This area, because of this, is like this. Um, And so I just bit hook, line, and sinker and walked into it like that. Mm -hmm. So at the time, were you able to identify other people uh, within the group around you that came from similar places as you, or what was your assessment of why other people were participating and involved in that kind of culture? That's a really good question. And I think in like in retrospect, I can see commonalities. A lot of kids coming from single parent households, a lot of kids, coming from abusive or drug, drug, uh, uh, drug problem backgrounds within their household. Um, it was mostly like a middle-class thing. There were like a lot of middle-class kids uh, were involved in this. A lot of people trying to like cry out, it seems like. And so that's in retrospect. At the moment, I just, I just knew it for what it was. This is a group that would accept me. But in retrospect, I can see those commonalities. I knew a lot of people were also raised by their grandmother. A lot of people didn't have relationships or had strained relationships with their parents or their father. A lot of kids had been beaten. We'd talk about stuff like that, not emotively, but we would share about those experiences. Um, And so I think that that has something to do with what holds that together. Mm -hmm. And did you come to identify with specific ideas around white supremacy? And what did that, what did that look like? I definitely did. I definitely did. Um, 
And this was like later as I built the belief out in prison through propaganda pieces, books, literature, revisionist history. Um, like you have a lot more time in prison to study. And I was in the shoe for a pretty lengthy period of time and in and out of the hole for the majority of my time. So I had an extra 12 hours to sit and read and study and dissect. And I always like to think of myself as objective. Like, oh, I can read this and I can read something that's opposed to this and I can come to a decision in between. But I know, I know now that I, I just bit right into the pseudoscience of it because it just, it felt like something that I needed to believe, like the core of me needed to believe this. Mm-hmm. Can you back up and talk a little bit about your path to incarceration and what age and point that happened for you? Sure. So like I said, I was on the streets from about 12 to 14, 14 and a half. Um, by this point, I'd been arrested a few times for like a commercial burglary, for fighting, things like that. And I had a probation officer, which I was on the run from. So they violated my probation and put me in juvenile hall. And when I went to court for the cases that were open, the judge determined that I didn't have a home to go to. So they made me what's called the ward of the court. And ward of the court essentially is uh, the foster care system, group home system. Uh, you're set there either until you're 18 or until you graduate a series of programs, which I was never able to do. So I stayed from 14 and a half until I was 18 within that system, going from placement to placement. Placement uh, Placements are like uh, like big group homes uh, with you know 50 to 100 kids, go through specific programming, get passes sometimes on the weekend. Um, so... During that time, uh, my father OD'd and died when I was about 16. He OD'd and died. And I went on the run. So for the last two years of my placement in this uh, ward of the court system, I was just getting picked up, thrown into a group home, run, hit the streets, and get caught up again and put back in. So I learned like a internal recidivism, I guess is what you mm-hmm. could call it. It was just like, this is just how this works. And at the age of 18... I was aged out and pushed out of the system. And by 18 and a half, I was in county jail for drug charges, uh, in county jail for uh, you know, a weapons charge, using a, using a weapon on someone and assault with a deadly weapon charge. Uh, I found my way to prison because of those charges. And that was my first term. I did two years in prison. And like hitting prison was like home. Mm-hmm. I was back in big dorms with people and Everybody, you know, nobody had their real names. Everybody was using handles. Everybody like, uh, like praised aggression and violence. Like that was like the way that you climbed the ladder. So that's exactly what I did. I just dug in to doing whatever was asked of me. I did the entirety of my two years. I was paroled, caught several parole violations and uh, caught my case at 21 years old and was sent up for 15 years. Can you speak a little bit about the impact of your father's death. You obviously had a really complex relationship, it sounds like. I love the use of that word because that's exactly, this the only way that I could just, just define it today. Like uh, my dad and my grandmother were the two most important people in my life. One gave me amazing messaging. Amazing. My grandmother was an angel. Like she looked over me and still looks over me. My father, on the other hand, uh, a lot of really bad stuff came from that relationship. But that loss, even though my grandmother was always there for me, that loss uh, felt premature, I guess you'd say. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, he just was gone one day. Uh, 
So I never really got to repair that relationship. And so I think that's where the conflict comes in that. Like I can feel stuff welling up right now. That's where it comes from is because it never was really resolved. Yeah. So it's, it's a very strange thing. I think we have different dynamics with our mother or our father from, from wherever you identify, like your relationship is different on both planes. Mother and father both are in your life or with whoever's in your life. And, uh, and that relationship was complex, like you said, but he's still my father. Mm-hmm. Of course. We've, we've discussed a little bit offline. I also lost my father and I talk a lot about grief and I still struggle to, um, to know what to say to people, but I just want to give, give weight to that and acknowledge your loss. Um, so you mentioned that, uh, once you were in prison, you actually started doubling down kind of on some of these, um, more racist ideas and, uh, or I don't know, maybe in your words, you could describe how, how you would summarize your ideas at the time. I don't want to put any words in your mouth. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, what that, um, how incarceration changed your ideas about yourself, um, about manhood and, um, you know, what this transition started to look like for you. So this, the simplest way that I can put it is prison is toxic masculinity. The, the entire political and social environment is built on the three principles. It's built on objectification of women, uh, ability to be violent, and pursuit of money, like having money, having women, being able to be violent or more violent than your peers made you somebody in that environment. Now, what I, what I don't want to do is justify my actions, but what I do know is on an internal level, I wanted to be somebody. I really wanted to be somebody. And it's such a simple, small ladder to climb in prison, um, at, least, at least in my experience, that I found it very easy to just throw myself on the line and do things and objectify pretty much everybody around me. Everybody was an object. Everybody was a target. Um, and just get deeply engaged in that and lose everything that had felt like just worthless my entire life prior to that. My grandmother died while I was fighting my case. Mm-hmm. Um, and like during that time, like that was the one person I had. So I didn't feel like I had anything holding me back to the world. Mm-hmm. I had people that I talked to. I had friends. I had girls that I spoke with, but uh, it didn't really matter if I was out there or not in, in my mind. So I just dug completely into that. And the environment praised the work that I did. And I was able to climb that very short ladder and, uh, and attain whatever degree of power, perceived power that you feel like you have when you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I, I did that for the majority of my time. I mean, I did 15 years and for 12 and a half to 13 of it, there was zero shift in the way that I was thinking or very minimal shift. Mm-hmm. And was the um, disruption, the introduction of success stories for you? It was, it was a key part. So it was, it was a multiple groups. Uh, I got transferred. I got moved from one prison to another prison, which was CTF central, which is where success stories was founded. Um, and at this prison, there was an entirely different like population than I was used to. A lot of older people who were serving life sentences and were trying to go to groups so that they could process what was going on and get a parole date. Um, and at first I hated it. 
I hated everything about the environment. It felt what you, what you'd say in prison was soft. It felt like a soft yard. Mm-hmm. Um, and through like walking track, walk, they have a huge yard, massive yard. And we'd walk laps on the yard and hear conversations happening. And like my, I feel like my inner self latched onto these conversations happening because I hadn't been around anything like that deep intellectual, passionate conversations about stuff that's happened to us, stuff that we did that we have remorse for. Like I'd like my, my emote, my intelligence towards that type of conversation was so minimal. I just didn't even know how to respond, but it appealed to me. Um, so fast forward, I was in solid ed for four years and for two years of it, I was one way. And for two years of it, I was a different way. And that took place because, um, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, for one. Uh, I decided, you know, maybe I could deal with the drug and alcohol problem, and that'll be enough. I don't really need to change anything else. Um, and so I started going to meetings, but I was still doing all of the, you know, selling drugs, doing all of the political stuff that you do in prison. And I got caught, and I went to the hole. And there was something about, because AA is a very, like, emotionally... Um, it's like a resonant program. I don't know how familiar folks mm-hmm. are with AA, but AA is like, it's like super about getting real about what's going on within you, the stuff you're feeling. And uh, that appealed to me. So I went to the hole and can I you, made some commitments. For anybody yeah. who doesn't know, can you explain what the hole is? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the hole is ADSEG, administrative segregation. And they put you there for in isolation with minimal to no program with a couple hours in what's called a dog kennel, which is a dog, like it looks like a giant dog cage. That's what you go out to for yard, um, showers every other day. Um, and you just sit, basically you just sit and process. Um, so I went to the hole and I processed, but I, I did it differently than I ever had before because of the conversations I was having prior to going in. So I got out of the hole and made some commitments to step away from everything gang involved. I made a firm commitment that I'm not going to go by Casper, which was my moniker while I was inside. I'm not going to engage in these things. I'm going to go home. I want to go home. Um, and part of that process was doing more groups. So I signed up for success stories. And in success stories was the pivotal moment where I began questioning how I viewed masculinity and how it was serving me and the things that are most important to me. That... Uh, moment that you made that commitment. I mean, obviously you're sitting there isolated, but is there anything you can pinpoint that, you know, it seems like over a 12 year span, you know, something pretty profound has to shift in your head to, in order to make that commitment. It was, yeah, and I absolutely can. So I thought if I dealt with, like I said earlier, if I dealt with the drug or alcohol problem, I'd be good. If I deal with this this gang issue, this thing that hasn't done anything for my life, because that's a lot of the conversation that happens in solid, like evicting things that aren't serving you and what you want out of life. If I deal with that, I'm good. I never questioned how I viewed masculinity. Never once in my life. I had internal questioning going on because, you know, we're all, you know, I'm posturing. I'm continually posturing to like be more of a man, but inside that's not really who I am. But in success stories, they walk, we walk us, like we walk participants through a specific process and get to the conversation on toxic masculinity. We do a patriarchy workshop and that patriarchy workshop was what really did it for me. And it's not because I believed everything that they said. It had nothing to do with that. It's because I did not. I get like the very core of me. I stood up. Uh, I got in an argument. Not, you know, I was arguing with the facilitator. The facilitator didn't argue back. Um, 
And, you know, I debated gender roles and how we're supposed to view uh, sexual identity because those are conversations that they were having. I had never even thought needed mm-hmm. to be questioned. Um, but what they were suggesting and what I now believe to be true is, you know, we're all posturing. We have a mask. We're wearing a mask. Uh, and that mask is often is often how we're viewing ourselves as men, because society has put so much emphasis on what a man should be. And we've limited ourselves in the scope of our masculinity by saying our own masculinity is this. It is being more being capable of violence. It's being able to get more women. It's being able to obtain more money. If you do those things, you're more of a man. If you can't do those things, you're less of a man. It's an oversimplification of what I am as a human being. And so when like the way that the conversation went was I pushed back and I debated and the facilitator sat, he took it in, he created space where I could like really express where I was at. And then he posed uh, through Socratic method. He just posed some questions for me. And that's those questions, not my aggression towards the group, towards the ideas, towards the facilitator. That's not what I walked out with. What I walked out with was those questions. And I went back to myself and I, I remember thinking, like, why was I, why was I so upset about this when it makes sense? At least, at least the mask part makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that fifty-one percent shift, just that much, was what got me more willing to question more in my life that wasn't serving me and wasn't helping me be, you know, act in integrity. So that was the tipping point. So you were resistant to a lot of parts of it, but they planted the seeds that then you got to sit in and grapple with on your own. Did Chris describe that he um, was under the, or reeled into the program under the assumption it had to do with, you know, financial literacy and entrepreneurship. Um, Was that also your impression or did you know you were walking into feminist workshops and what, what was your response to words like feminism and patriarchy in the beginning? Oh, I definitely pushed back. Patriarchy, I didn't even hear outside of the group often. Um, but feminism, the documentary had came out uh, by the time, had just come out. Nobody had really seen it um, because we don't have access to that kind of media. But we knew that it had been filmed and it came out by the time I was going. And I remember sitting and talking with the same facilitator, 88, the one that I was uh, in the debate with and telling him, like, you know, they're calling this documentary The Feminist on Cell Block Y how do you feel about that? Like feeling like I was supposed to be offended by the word feminism. Um, so I definitely push back against those ideas. The, the financial literacy thing, uh, that was a, a Chris, that was a Chris moment because that was during the entry into the prison. They do like an intake explanation. I didn't mm-hmm. go through that. I was really, they had uh, just passed a law that gave us credit off our sentences if we attended groups. So I signed up and worked however many angles I could to get in everything. Cause I wanted to take back some of the time that I'd, I'd lost through disciplinary action. Um, and and that was that was my entry. It was just for rat credits. It became so much more than that, but yeah. Yeah. Describe that, what it became for. I mean, you you work for success stories now. How do how do we go yeah. from this, you know, tipping point, like maybe okay, some of these ideas maybe ring true to you know, really embracing these concepts and starting to, you know, really change your life and beliefs. That's a really good question. And I think it says something, at least in my experience, to like the idea of planting a seed, because in that initial questioning and then the invitation to like continually question your belief systems. We have a whole week on that discusses belief systems. We have several weeks that discuss different varieties of belief systems. And 
and uh, week eight specifically talks about it. And it's just like breaking open the box of belief systems, the lenses we're viewing the world through. And in that we suggest, never demand, but suggest that people be willing to question everything. Just be willing to question, be willing to be wrong, right? So as I moved forward over a series of months, I started questioning and seeing the stuff that they talk about in the documentary, in one of the documentaries that we watched on week four. Um, I'd seeing it in my everyday life in prison. I came home and was hit with just a flood of patriarchy, just observing the way that the world operates and how it marginalizes and how it oppresses. And uh, I could no longer just say, oh, some of this stuff was true. Like I was seeing in real time everything that was being discussed play out. And, and so I wanted to be involved. I had the opportunity. I talked with Richie, uh, like almost right when I came home. And then after I, I was released from transitional housing, which is where they make you go when you get up, uh, get, out, get out on parole, uh, I talked with him again. And it just happened. The day that I reached out to him, he had, a co he had just established the organization. And he's like, I need a coach. Do you want to try being a coach? We'll try to get you into prisons and you can deliver success stories. I, was, do, I did the facilitator work inside. And I was like, sure, I'll try it out. And through that one step, um, and it was not a sure thing at the time, like we didn't know exactly how, like if we'd be able to expand, if we'd be limited to three prisons, if I could even get into the prisons, we had no idea. Mm -hmm. But through that work and getting involved with like the, a community based on integrity, like the way that the organization is set up, the way that the directors deal with, with staff, the way that we talk things through and pull each other, like pull each other up on things that need to be addressed, like. That was something that my soul needed. That was the community that I wasn't just trying to be accepted by, but that I also accepted, you know? That's mm -hmm. why I call it the family that I chose because uh, like everybody that I get to work with on a daily basis is like, they're like my best friends and my mentors, you know? Yeah, it's amazing. It's like very special and unique in just the way, you know, I've, I've been really impressed by how your coaches and facilitators just, really do foster this environment of openness that really meets people where they're at. And I think there's so much denial in our culture of if you're not already to this point that is politically correct, like we can't even talk to you. And it, it really feels counterproductive in a lot of ways. And yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, we want people to move away from harmful ideas and behaviors quickly, <laughs> but it takes work and, you know, people didn't get to these places quickly and they, they don't get out of them quickly. So um, it's really amazing to see how, how you and the team approach others. Can you explain a little bit more about that? You approaching your younger self or just when you're walking into a prison now um, and facing someone who identifies as a skinhead or a white supremacist, what, where are you starting so I start right at the basis of every human interaction. It's just an introduction. They're not any different. It, like I've had it happen because uh, I was the first coach to get to go into prisons. Uh, and I had those engagements. Um, I, I, I just make a point, even if it puts myself at risk, which sometimes it does. Um, I, I just put it all on the line. I make sure to be 100% clear and precise about where I was, what it got me, where I am today, and what I'm able to give from it give and get from it because it's, it's a reciprocal process. And, and the engagements don't always go great, but they don't go terribly. I think that a lot of, like, it's my belief that a lot of the resistance that we have to pulling uh, behavior up is just based on fear, right? It's just based on the fear of, 
of not fitting in on being judged and all that. So like, uh, I make sure to remain healthy and responsive in terms of the way that I engage. I don't judge because I know where they're coming from. And if I have the opportunity to tell them that I will tell them that. Um, so that's kind of the way that I approach it. If I was approaching my younger self, um, I think just because I'm able to see like in retrospect, what was missing for me and a space where I could be open and honest and emotive was not available. So if that's all, that success stories was offering if they were just creating a space where you could come in and say what you're feeling and not be judged as less than because you're feeling which is typically what happens for men um like that's that's enough right there but we like in the construction of our curriculum we offer so much more in deconstructing and unlearning uh, unhealthy behaviors that uh, it just i think it would be an easy conversation with my younger self because i was there can you describe just the the different steps in the program, just high level. Sure. What, yeah. what are the themes that you're going through week over week? So we have a 12 week curriculum on week one. Uh, we get grounded on what's the foundation of the program, which is our top five. And top five is an exercise that we walk through. And if people have watched the documentary, then they can see it mapped out in the documentary, but you basically break a list of 10 down to five. And these are the most important people and the most important goals in your life. Um, and so that's week one, week two and three, we still remain getting clear on top five, but utilize uh, the idea of time, like utilizing time to the benefit of your top five. So the first three weeks stays focused on top five and utilizing your time in the most constructive way to serve your top five. In that process, through a week by week process, people start seeing the things that they are doing that aren't serving their top five. So then we get to the question of toxic masculinity. Is this behavior serving your top five? This is what we're describing it to you to be. Do you model it? Most common answer is yes. Sometimes people say no, sure. But if you're modeling it, why? And is it serving your top five? Because if you base the program on the premise that you're, these are the most important people and goals in your life, right? Then why are you doing anything that hinders those relationships and you achieving those goals? Uh, so we have the conversation on toxic masculinity, uh, we have the conversation on patriarchy that covers four, five, and six. We do a series of exercises and workshops in that time and uh, end the conversation on the note of integrity, right? Which is the principle that we're saying one way that we define integrity is uh, through living wholly and completely for your top five. But another way that we define it is being your own true self, being one person, whole, complete. Uh, and so through that process, we get to push away ideas like compartmentalization. We get to push away ideas like, uh, like basically trying to assimilate with the people around you because that's not your true self, that's their true self. And then from seven all the way through the rest of the time, we, we base our program on conversing about different ways to model integrity. So seven, week seven is love. We talk about love, unhealthy definitions of love that we may have break that down, unlearn that, and relearn a healthier definition of love. Eight is belief systems and like, uh, like basically belief systems. Nine is emotions. 10, we talk about um, victim versus victorious, like a, a type of thinking uh, mm -hmm. that we have where we're saying the world is happening to us. But when we take free agency and ownership of ourselves and grasp our own personal power, we're able to be clear and take ownership for the things that we're doing that are allowing stuff to take place. It's not about ownership of others. It's just ownership of self. And then 11, we discuss uh, just the basic idea of delayed and instant gratification, which we call rich thinking and broke thinking. 
Uh, and so the idea of rich thinking is like enriched thinking, not rich like monetary. Mm. And the idea of broke thinking is like broken thinking, right? So it's like pockets in, pockets out, or you can think of it in the more literal enriched or broken thinking. And we basically reinforce the need for delayed gratification so that we can wait things out and push into, our, into the goals that we want, knowing that there's going to be hurdles. And then we close out with graduation and at graduation and week 12, we have folks write a letter to themselves from 10 years in the future. And uh, basically they're saying the things that they've utilized, not just from our curriculum, from everything that they're learning, the hurdles that they've hit, the people that are in their lives. So it's a vision casting exercise that uh, allows a person to basically dream out what they want, who they want to be with, who they want to be. And, and I think it's just a powerful exercise that we get to close our, our curriculum with. Wow. Yeah. We need a second documentary. So we get to see all of it, all the steps there. Yeah. Sounds really powerful and important. You mentioned a healthy idea of love. Can you explain for you just what that is today? For sure. So I took my definition right out of the curriculum, which is uh, like in basic, like love is a process of investment. It's a willingness to give of oneself for the benefit and growth of yourself and another. So love isn't just like we tend to, like something that comes up in the curriculum is we tend to think of it in terms of partnership, who you're with, but that's not the only place where love is present because love is present in an engagement that I have with my coworkers. Love is present, you know, with my family and all of it may be different faces of love, but all of it is a process of investment from oneself outward for the mutual growth and development of other people. So like in that, in that conversation, you get to discuss um, the unhealthy versions of love that we may be modeling, um, knowing the abusive background that I came up with, I can mm -hmm. see in the relationships that I had, how I was modeling love. Was it this definition, this very simplistic process of investment? And the, the short answer would be no. Um, and then like the idea that love and harm cannot coexist. Uh, we, we discuss that. We ask people how they feel about it. And so if I was to say, if I was running a small group right now, I would ask, if I was to say love and harm can't coexist, how do folks feel about that? What's coming up for you? And they'll talk that out. And, and in that, like the example that often comes up and I can use something for myself, like my father loved me on a general level. He loved me, but he had damage and trauma that he had experienced in life. And in the moments where he hit me or spoke abrasively or harsh to me or taught me things that eventually I would model in my own life, that was not love. So how do we get ourselves to love in every moment is kind of the closing rhetorical question. Uh, and I think that that definition, modeling that definition, looking at your love goes and saying, if I'm loving you, then I'm investing in you. And if I'm not investing in you, then I'm not loving you. I'm wondering what still challenges you today? Is there any part of your own manhood, uh, any part of the curriculum that comes up for you that still feels that you feel a disconnect or I wouldn't call it a disconnect but absolutely every day is a continuous struggle against socialization against like so I, you know I'm married I'm, I'm in a relationship relationships are hard anyways uh, and trying to remove something that both of us not just myself but but Lynn as well has been told is the way that a marriage is supposed to be is a very difficult thing uh, yeah. So that is, sometimes it's a deep conversation. Sometimes it's a fight. Um, and 
it's also not a process of just removing it because even when I think I'm removing the stuff that is patriarchal in nature and it's just socialization, right around the corner, I'm doing something that is patriarchal in nature. And uh, so just like a willingness to challenge that and the willingness to be pulled up by my partner, if that need be, um, that's, that's very, very trying um, and sometimes feels very uphill. Mm-hmm. So that would be, that, that would be my short answer for that. So in a 2021 climate, I'm wondering how it feels to be so open about your past and your present and, um, you know, the kind of responses you've seen and, um, you know, maybe how that comes up within the other, within the team at success stories and other, um, marginalized groups or people of color in your life. How are, how are you having those conversations and kind of reconciling that? I think, uh, so like I said, I may, I'm commit to myself that I will be transparent, but there are moments where you know, I'm wary. Um, I've, I've had a few speaking engagements that I've had an opportunity to do. Um, and you know, sometimes people aren't, I mean, we don't live in the most accepting culture anyways, and I shouldn't expect and wouldn't expect anybody to accept the things that I did. I just speak openly and hope that it comes to a place where uh, there's benefit to me sharing that stuff. So I've had, um, I've had some, some rough experiences in terms of those speaking engagements. Uh, and, and it does, it does uh, give me pause. Like I feel a pause in going into conversations about uh, my racial uh, or my racial biases from the past and stuff like that. I do know that the things that were said specifically, like we do not lock arms with our, when our purpose is not to lock arms with our oppressor. I do know those things to be true. Like I know that that isn't their responsibility to do that. And I take it as feedback. Um, but it, it can be difficult because there's always kind of a fear of uh, being cast aside because it's, you're not really wanted in these spaces. But I do feel like there's a benefit to, uh, there's, there's a benefit in sharing what I've experienced, the whys and working in this field to help uh, and support people uh, in walking out of those lifestyles. Yeah, it's obviously very controversial and very sensitive for good reason. And, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge my privilege and capacity to even have this conversation with you as someone who has not been directly harmed in these ways. And I don't think it's the work of anyone who has been harmed or oppressed to have empathy for or explore the roots of anyone who's causing it. But I think it is one of the most important conversations for white people to be having if our goal is actual change and deep transformation for people who have a history or present of racism and violence. And, you know, it just seems like there's this tendency for us to just shut down and cancel people, anybody who's explicitly racist and certainly yes. And sometimes absolutely, absolutely yes. uh, For people in positions of power and beyond. Uh, But then, you know, we're acting like they just cease to exist. And we're talking about a really, you know, large, unfortunately, group of people and a big, really big, broad problem and lifetime of conditioning that we want them to overcome. So, yeah, we need to take the time to understand how people are getting here and what real change looks like, what healing looks like, what actual transformation looks like. And how can we possibly do that without hearing honest and vulnerable stories like yours? And 
yeah, we need more men like you modeling a different path. So I think it's incredibly valuable and I really appreciate you doing that, even though I'm sure it's very uncomfortable sometimes. It can. And also I do want to, I mean, I will say that it's not always uncomfortable. There are, there are plenty of times more often than not that organizations and groups have opened themselves to me despite the history and actually allowed, you know, not, not just success stories. There's plenty of organizations that I get to work with today uh, that don't judge me based on my past, because I mean, as sad as it is to say, racism is, is clear and present in our society, like you said. And I think that is what you said about it not going away. These people don't just go away. Um, I had a conversation with our director, Manny Thomas, and we were sitting in my living room, just having a normal conversation. And that came up the subject of it. And I think there, there's a tremendous benefit in, in the process of accountability and just opening up a space. Because if you don't do that, you're exactly right. They don't go away. Mm-hmm. They go within. Mm-hmm. All the ideas, the belief systems that they were never presented the opportunity to question are still cemented and maybe even stronger. Mm-hmm. So like, what I got to go through with success stories and like, presented with an option, with an open space for me to really think and unthink some stuff like that needs to happen more and more because for transformation, we have to offer space for everybody to be given the opportunity to transform. Yeah. Yeah. It's this idea of you can't be what you can't see. It's like, you're not seeing a lot of people with your story stepping up, leading feminist workshops. Like how yeah. do we, how do we show this story all over the place so people know this is a path and an option and, um, and really, you know, help affect that deep personal change. So you mentioned accountability. I'm curious what accountability looks like for you today. Um, what is what does healing look like for people or communities you may have harmed? Uh, forgiveness, amends. This is, I know that's a, a, a loaded and broad question, but can you tell me how you're thinking about that today? I, I view it through the lens of transformational justice, transformative justice. Mm-hmm. And like I view it in the process of, allowing space for accountability and for folks to like, in terms of accountability, that means ownership. That means taking an accounting and actual dollars and cents, taking accounting for the harm that has been caused. Um, and in the process of amends, doing things that can reverse for that person, allow that person the space so that they can heal too. Now, if that's not permitted, which in many cases is not, at least contributing to society in a meaningful way and looking at the things um, like we've been able to talk about throughout our conversation, like looking at the things societally that take place, the systems that are in place that continue to create so that we can be more preventative, continue to create systems of harm. Um, so on the, on the individual level, it's the way that the success stories does. We walk in, um, we walk in on week one and we take, we say, these are the things that are important. And these are the people that are important, like I said, and throughout the process of the next weeks, it's not about breezing over and just talking about the things that we are doing. So things that we aren't doing, the people we have harmed, uh, the places that that came from. And when I can own it, then I can see how destructive that quality is in, in me. And I have the opportunity to question and, you know, you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. It is, I, I think that's how the saying goes, right? Um, and in this process, there's not going to be a 100% success rate, but creating that space is more valuable than just saying, oh, we'll never be successful at it anyways. Let's lock people in cages and just give them an arbitrary amount of time. Uh, and when they get out, maybe they'll be okay. That's, it's just more valuable. It's more productive. And it's actually humanizing 
folks that in more often than not have experienced trauma and are acting from a trauma response. I guess I'll go a little deeper on like the forgiveness or amends piece. Mm. Do you feel like you forgive yourself at this point for some of your past actions? Do you seek or expect forgiveness from others? And, you know, are you doing anything in particular um, to make amends besides what you just spoke to? Great question. Also a kind of a bit loaded. So I'll say this. (laughs) I'd like to say, I'd love to say that I forgive myself. I would love to. And I think sometimes, uh, the admixture of shame and remorse, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I'm a strong advocate for challenging shame where it shows up. I don't think that there's anything productive that, that comes from shame, um, but it does still come. It does still show up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've done a lot of harm and I've, you know, like there is, there's a tremendous remorse in me to want to make things right where I can. I've actually worked in a men's list, like an eight step in AA is what they call a ninth mm-hmm. step. Uh, so I wrote out my eighth step and I went through and through that process, people that I harmed prior to going to prison uh, that I could reach, I would reached out to and I offered space and said, basically, like, um, I'm willing to do what I can to try to make what I've hurt, what, where I've harmed you right. Um, so that's a very specific thing that I do. But there's many cases, hundreds of people on my list, great or small harms that I couldn't reach. You know, one being like my grandmother, uh, my father, there's still harm that I did to him too. So I can't reach those. So those are like living amends where I commit to a better way of being in myself, a more Mm -hmm. integral way of being so that I can uh, pay homage to the relationship and hopefully make that right. And, you know, uh, those are the ways that I do that. So forgiveness, I don't expect forgiveness from anybody. Any one of the people that I have spoken with could easily say, I want nothing to do with you, stay the F out of my life. Uh, and okay, I don't intrude or, mm-hmm. uh, I don't intrude on their life or their space, but I, I, I do feel a tremendous amount of remorse, um, because for one, the things that I did in the place they were coming from, I don't even feel like that same person today, mm-hmm. but they are the same person. I am still that person. Um, so, you know, yeah, I guess that's, that's how I'd answer that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your honesty. So lastly, okay, men today who don't have uh, the opportunity to access a success stories program or aren't ready or willing or any men who might be reckoning with some of the things you're saying and their own views that are maybe harmful, behaviors that are harmful. um, What are a couple questions that you might pose for them? A good question that comes off the top of my head is like, uh, how is that working for you? You know, like look at the, the goals that you had or have in life, the people that are, that you say are most important to you. How is that serving them? And thus, how is it serving you would be one question I'd ask. So how's that working for you? Um, and another tool is like uh, something that I would suggest is just a willingness to question everything. Be willing to be wrong. Cause I know that that is the point that was most valuable to me. And we go through our lives um, just asserting or aggressing that we're right. You know, a, a million times in my life, I've said, oh, I'm, I'm pretty much right all the time. That is so untrue. But how many other people are walking around thinking that and actually believing it? Um, and so just a willingness to be wrong would, is so valuable. And, you know, open yourself, just open yourself. You can feel, you are allowed to feel. 
the fear that comes from people who hide their feelings. Everyone, every, I, I hate to generalize, but everybody gets weepy at some movies. Like some movies will just get you weepy, right? And sitting there and trying to hold it back because you're afraid of being viewed as less than uh, is so much less valuable than letting it out and letting yourself feel something. This emotional range that was given to us that we were, that whatever the belief system is that we were designed with, right? That came about through evolution or otherwise uh, is, is a gift. It's a gift. And it, we aren't limited just because we're men. We don't have less emotions. So be open to that idea. Be willing to be wrong and question. That's what I would say. Mm-hmm. And for anybody who might want to approach this conversation with a man in their life, so maybe not the individual themselves, um, but you know, it can, as you know, it can be a, um, a slippery conversation that requires some tact. Do you have any tips for how people could start to plant seeds for people in their life? Hmm. That's good. I mean, I guess it's a really good question. I guess it's really on the individual wanting to be open to the material. Um, I've had experiences with like my, my son-in-law where I've just had him I'd sit down with him and I watched the documentary and I just watched it and got thoughts and had a conversation about it, opening the space for conversation, letting, letting them feel like they can be them free. So if they don't like what's said in the documentary or in the conversation, please feel free to say it. Not allowing yourself to be offended, even though some of the stuff that does come out may be offensive, like just create that space so that they can process and realize it's not a statement of them. It is more, it's not a statement of yourself. It's more about them. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. just creating a space for them. And if, if the person, if the partner isn't the right person for that, invite them, you know, invite them to successfully. The opportunity is here for everybody. We are open, mm-hmm. you know, we are open to, to run groups. We have virtual workshops um, and see if you get any value out of it. Mm-hmm. Some may not, but I believe that most will. I too believe that most will. The documentary and talking with you guys has had such a big impact on me personally and so many men in my life that I see suffering in, in a lot of ways. And so it's very inspiring. And I know other people will feel the same way. Uh, thank you so much for your time and your transparency and vulnerability in this conversation. Uh, I appreciate you so much, and I can't wait to share your story with our community. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate being able to do this with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Thoughtful Human. If you'd like to follow along on our journey or check out our products, you can visit our website at thoughtfulhuman.co or find us on all socials at Thoughtful Human. And of course, if you found this episode useful in any way, we'd so appreciate a review to help us reach more people who might need it. And finally, if you or a loved one needs access to a month of free therapy, you can visit betterhelp.com slash thoughtfulhuman.